Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name is Neil Selwyn and in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, I'm talking with Dr Radhika Gaurur. Radhika is an Associate Professor at Deakin University where she's completing a prestigious DECRA Fellowship funded by the Australian Research Council. This has seen Radhika steadily make a name for herself by applying ideas from the interdisciplinary tradition of STS to make sense of education policy. In particular, her work has explored the role of numbers, statistics and indicators in driving education ideas and knowledge. So, to kick off the conversation, I asked Radhika to reflect on the key concerns that drive her work. about um, how ideas get mobilized and how they how they shape the world um, so very much I think I'm very um, taken and also concerned by the performativity of things so mm. I don't mean performativity as in you know have league tables and things like that what I'm talking about is really how ideas shape the world and you think about how ideas uh, get mobilized and how they actually fundamentally can alter the world I think it's a very kind of um, serious subject, really. Uh, so I think in, in very broadly, that's what I'm concerned about. Happily for me, it, my focus of research hasn't always been dark and gloomy. It's been a much more joyous world of looking at how numbers have participated in policy, in education policy and so on. And I think for a while it was fine because looking at Australia and countries that are generally doing well, now I'm looking with my DECRA, I'm looking at um, the Global South and how global policy networks are changing things in the Global South. Um, and the huge task ahead of people in the Global South to improve really their education system and, and to provide something decent for their children. And how some of some of the ideas that are mobilized might actually be interfering with the possibility of that. Mm, I mean, so there's so much there. Yeah. Talking about ideas, what yeah. sort of ideas are being mobilized and how are they kind of hitting education? Yeah. I think the ease with which people's minds can be made up uh, and particularly with large scale assessments and big data beyond large scale assessments. Um, the, the confidence with which numbers speak mm. and then, you know, uh, kind of displace, uh, not just displace ideas that you, you know, I mean, one of the fascinating stories I remember was I was interviewing somebody about Pisa and he was talking, he was a Canadian and he was talking about how people used to go from Canada and from Finland to Germany to learn from them how, how, how to do education better. And when Pisa 2000, you know, results were announced in 2001, they again went to Germany and the German minister said, well, we should be learning from you because, you know, we are doing so much worse. And it struck me that, and, and I mean, he was talking about, you know, I wanted to say give our money back and so on. But what struck me was these people had some reason to believe that Germany was good. Yeah. yeah. And that's why they were going there. And all of a sudden, Pisa comes along and they now know that Germany is bad. And, you know, how do you, how does everything that you knew get displaced by one assessment? Yeah, yeah. It's just fascinating, you know, how much power uh, numbers seem to have. As you say, having your mind made up by numbers yeah, is yeah. a really powerful thing. I mean, yeah. I wanted to talk to your, your particular interest in numbers, and you've written a lot about measurement and metrics in education policy. I mean, what is it about the, the numerical turn in education that really takes your attention? I think what it is about the numerical term is that, A, they're very confident, and they have this air of neutrality and objectivity, 
uh, you know, people talk on the bottom line and it comes down to it and, you know, the numbers speak for themselves and so on. So this whole idea of numbers speaking for themselves, I think, is part of the issue. Um, the other thing is that because numbers are made by people with certain specializations, statisticians who are uh, seen as uh, having so much, special, you know, being so specialized that we can't possibly understand it. So mm. we just take what, they, what they're given. We, we don't really question them. It's the same thing with doctors. If doctors tell you something, you don't question them. Yeah, yeah, if a teacher yeah. tells you something, you know, you have many, many opinions about it, but, uh, and, and you, you will challenge it very, very much more easily. It's the same thing. I think numbers are, people find it hard to challenge numbers and they've become a shorthand to explain lots of things um, or mis-explain, you know, explain incorrectly lots of things. But I also, you know, I was lucky enough actually to talk to a number of um, psychometricians and statisticians. I've interviewed lots and lots of people, have very fascinating data. And if you talk to them from a kind of epistemology point of view Mm. or from the view of um, their own epistemic practices, they immediately tell you how tentative those numbers are and all the mess and the fuss that sits underneath the clean looking things. I remember talking to one person at the OECD who is engaged in publishing education at a glance. And she was saying, you know, our report is 550 pages. You know why it's 550 pages? It's because beneath every every number sits like so many words because we have to be so precise about how to define them and so on and so forth. And she said, the numbers are just, you know, scratching the surface and underneath that there's all this other stuff. And she says people don't pay attention and they just conflate things like dropout and non-completion and non-enrollment and all sorts of things into one thing. And they're actually very, very different things. And we are at pains to explain that they're different, but nobody pays attention and they just grab the headlines. So I think this headline making capacity of numbers, uh, which then takes over the narrative Mm. and brushes aside everything else and... Um, you know, and then start, and then people just start operating with that. Uh, it becomes a common it, sense. Do you find it cr- difficult to be a critic among, in this area? Because it's not something that social scientists often engage with. And I guess if you hear anyone talking about numbers, yeah. the obvious assumption, particularly in the kind of general public, is that you like numbers. I mean, is it, do you get pushback? No, into- I actually I get the opposite. I, people really? think that I don't like numbers, you know, that, that somehow I'm critical of quantification. Like uh, this is, I'm yeah. not talking, I'm talking of my colleagues in, in my field. Mm. Uh, I, I think they, I remember the first, um, abstract I sent to a AARE conference, one of my early as a PhD student. It got accepted, but the but the review was we're not sure whether you're pro numbers or anti numbers, <laughs> <laughs> because the first half sounds like you're anti numbers and the second half sounds like you're pro numbers. You know, it's like I'm not pro. How can as you, if be you pro have to or take anti? sides? Yeah, yes, yeah. Exactly. You know, and that's that's the thing. It's that numbers are doing stuff, and I just want to study what they're doing. But it's interesting in Australia that over the last 10 years, there has been more of a recognition about the the stuff that numbers do. So, I mean, you've got NAPLAN, you've got MySchoolPees. I mean, particularly in Australia, why is there there this kind of turn towards numbers? It's not just Australia. I think it's part of, you know, I I hate to explain things using neoliberalism, but I think it's a global trend, you know, Mm. of of, um, especially, and also, of course, because, you know, PISA was born out of Australia. Um, most the architects of PISA were actually all from Melbourne. Mm. Uh, that's why it was so easy for me to talk to so many people because they were all here. And I think, um, you know, this idea that, um, I mean, NAPLAN actually came from America to us um, when Gillard went to Joel Klein in, in New York and, and brought it back. 
uh, here, this idea of like school comparisons and so on. So, so this mobilisation really, of ideas, yeah. as you say. Now, I guess theoretically you've talked about networks, you've mentioned STS and I mean, you're working very much in this STS tradition. I'm just interested in terms of what STS does for you as, as a theoretical um, tradition. What do you get from it? I owe so much actually to STS. The best thing about STS, I think, is that the literature in, in that area is so much fun to read. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. So much, so much fun to read because it's so widespread. So, but the thing that annoys me about STS is that is the, is the term science and technology studies and it is so much more than science and technology studies and there's a whole uh, raft of people studying politics in SDS studying feminism you know whatever it is is such a broad field Uh, but when I say SDS many people in education think I'm talking about um, you know science education uh, which which really you know is so far from what it is yeah yeah. Um, so I, I just wish that we had a better term than SDS so what I think it has done for me really is is um, provided a way, this kind of link between knowledge making or ideas, mobilization or um, fact making or whatever, the link between that, science as in knowledge, knowledge making and politics, you know, the, the close link between that. In fact, you know, uh, STS, uh, the, the people doing politics and studying politics in STS, and I think that's where it came from. The kind of focus in liberal governance on, you know, rationality and evidence and meliorism mm. and, you know, individualism, universalism, all that kind of thing, I think, is so closely linked to ideas of expertise and evidence and, and rationality in science. And I think that's how the interest developed. And I find that that's um, very, very useful uh, to study politics yeah. in, in general. Now, I'm interested, I mean, it sounds like you're doing a lot of reading and a lot of reading outside of the traditional education research areas. I'm just interested, these ideas don't come from, from nowhere. I mean, mm. what, what have you been reading recently that's really got you going? <laughs> Actually, I bought two, two books recently when I went to uh, San Francisco to CIES. Uh, one is called Cooking Data, yep. which is not about data about cooking, but actually how do you cook data? Uh, it's written by an anthropologist who is um, uh, anthropologist about her work in Malawi, um, where they were doing research on AIDS, and so this is like demographic research mm. um, that is quite large scale, so big surveys. And what's fascinating about that book is that you know on the one hand she writes about the tradition of survey research. It's like, you know, laws seeing like a survey kind of idea, but what is the effect on what you learn because of the methodology that you use? So about survey methodology itself. But she also writes quite a bit about the relationship between researchers uh, and, you know, from overseas and research, the local researchers and who are recruited for their knowledge of the local community, but who also have to be apart from the local community um, in order to act as kind of agents of the, yeah, of yeah. the foreign it's research. It's really kind of mediating role. Yeah, and, and the way differences are created and perpetuated and, and or blurred. Uh, so it's a really interesting mm. study of all of that as well. So I've, I've, I've been fascinated by that book. Um, but prior to that, I read another book called The Seduction of Quantification by Sally Mary. And that I found, uh, you know, I mean, on the one hand, I was kicking myself for not having written a book like that myself (laughs) (laughs) or not having written any book at all. But um, because I I felt that a lot of what she was saying was really what what I had also found. But her topic was actually uh, violence towards women. And she was looking at how different major agencies are quantifying violence towards women and how the way they conceptualize that uh, led to 
uh, different ways of measuring it and therefore different policy directions that they that they suggested and how her own work in you know qualitative work actually provided a lot more information where it would be would, would have been very advantageous to actually have that other insight because that would show that this was quite misplaced some of the stuff that they were doing There's was quite so misplaced. many examples of that homelessness statistics in the UK you have to be lying down to be homeless so therefore councils go around making sure no one actually can lie down yeah, it's, yeah. it's fascinating yeah, yeah. Now, I guess some people, just finally, some people listening to this would be saying, well, you have got a lot of time to read books because you have this DECRA, which you've talked about a few times, which is um, kind of early career fellowship from the Australian Research Council. So for many early career researchers, that's the dream. um, So I'm really interested about what advice you'd have for people that are thinking of applying for these kind of things. And actually, now that you've had one of these things and done it, I mean, has there anything surprised you about the realities of having an early career fellowship? Uh, What surprised me really was the huge sense of responsibility I felt. Uh, somehow yeah. to be given uh, a huge sum of money by the government and to have very little oversight uh, in how you're going about your work mm-hmm. and, and to not really have to periodic, you know, other than how you're spending money, actually what you're producing. Yeah. The, you know, I think that the trust that they've placed, um, I, I applaud, you know, that, that, um, that confidence. Uh, but I, I, because I feel it actually makes you rise to it. Yeah, you know, you, So I, I hope they don't think that they have to start putting, you know, kind of milestones, milestones and things <laughs> like that um, in place. Because I really think that uh, because, of course, things don't go according to the mm. way you imagined it. Um, in terms of actually advice for people who, are, who want to apply for a DECRA, I, I give a surprising piece of advice, which when I got it, I thought, you know, load of rubbish. Uh, because I went to somebody with three or four ideas and said, you know, which which do you think is going to get me a DECRA? And he looked at it and he said, you know, what are you most passionate about? And I thought, no, I want to know, you know, what, what's... <laughs> and But I felt that actually he was absolutely right. Yeah. I think it is what you're most passionate about because that does show through, shines through in the in the um, in the proposal that you create yeah if you're not convinced then the reviewers are certainly not yeah, going to be convinced not just not convinced but not absolutely dying to do it because i knew when i was writing that application that if i didn't get the deck right find some other way to yeah, do it yeah. uh, if it meant you know giving up my job for you know a couple of years or something like i, I just knew that i had to do it and so i think that that that'll make a convincing uh, proposal but once you get it i think you know I mean, in my case, I've been lucky enough to, you know, I'm 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 um, kind of a mid-career academic, but I'm I've had a whole other career before me. So, you know, I I have my kids are grown up, and you know, I've kind of um, I've I've freed up my time in in quite a lot of ways. So I've been able to really fully throw myself into this, yeah, yeah. and so I could seize everything that came my way. I could travel a lot. I and you know I was traveling the last couple of years. I've been traveling pra- practically every month. I've been overseas, and it's hard on you. And sometimes you kind of feel that there's all this other stuff that's not happening. A lot of writing is not happening. Yeah, I yeah. think because of that. But I feel that you know when you can do it, just do it. You know, and then and then um, cope with cope with the backlog. You know, and it will give you such yeah. a foundation of stuff to then yeah, carry yeah, on with in the yeah. future. So we've got to be passionate. We've got to be hopeful. Yeah. Ready to travel. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks ever so much for taking the time to speak to you. It's been really, really My interesting. Pleasure.